Thank you all for helping lead us in worship through song. We definitely will uh, be singing that song more uh, in the coming uh, weeks as we march through Revelation. In fact, you can open up to Revelation chapter 1. And if you're unfamiliar with that song, it's at least the lyrics are from an old Charles Wesley hymn. And uh, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, which we looked at last week through verses uh, 1 through 8, and then you take a look at the lyrics, you'll see um, from Revelation 1, and then if some of the lyrics are from a little bit later in Revelation. But just praising the Lord for and longing for uh, his return. Um, but those lyrics there, those who mocked and scorned his name, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wail and sorrow grieve when they the true Messiah see. So from uh, verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1, every eye will see the Lord dressed in dreadful majesty, which is going to come up again this morning in the, John's first vision of the Christ um, Every knee shall bow before the judge of all eternity. So, a great song. I'm excited to learn it together and sing it together. But look with me now. Uh, We're going to just read our section this morning. We're going to look at verses 9 through verse 20 of Revelation. And we'll read it together. And I think have the intended um, kind of reality of reading this because it sounds out of this world, Um, as you read it and you kind of see even the description of Christ, there's something that is both terrifying and comforting. And so um, when you read it and hear it and you have kind of a confusion, I think there's almost a good way in which we're meant to read it that way. A lot of the symbolism of Revelation is meant to be very vivid and to kind of evoke emotion. So looking here at verse 9, John writes, again of himself, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulations and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame a fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword, which comes out of his mouth and in his face, was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven, uh, seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we come 
longing to learn more about you, learn more about what you have intended for your church to know about uh, the second coming of our King as revealed here through John's vision is revealed from, uh, revealed from John's revelation of Jesus Christ. Encourage us, just even admonish us where needed as we see both the dreadful might and beauty of the coming Savior. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you are like many Christians and you have been around uh, the church for a while, you've probably come to love and enjoy certain books that are not necessarily biblical in any way, but they just tend to have a following. Uh, One of those series, and it's a fictional book, you know well, I would imagine, is the Chronicles of Narnia. And a lot of you grew up maybe reading them. I know uh, I did, and then now I'm reading them to my children, so they'll understand this this uh, kind of picture that I want to give, because I think it's interesting when you come to Revelation, you come to John, and this is John, the apostle. This is John, who in his own gospel says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He walked with Jesus on the earth, his earthly ministry, for three years. He was there at the crucifixion, at least the only one that we know of, where Jesus instructs him to take his mother and care for Mary, Jesus' mother. He's lived out his ministry at this point for years, seeing all of those miraculous apostolic era gifts that have happened. He's probably for sure in his 80s, perhaps 90 years old at this point in his life. And he is encountering something very clearly from what he's seeing and being caught up in, That is something he has never seen before. And if anyone could probably encounter the risen Christ and not be kind of fall down like a dead man the way he is, uh, you'd think it'd be the Apostle John. Because I go, if, if we would see the risen Christ, I would imagine we would fall down because we've never seen him. But there is something even unique here that John sees Christ in his fullness maybe the glimpse he saw at the Mount of Transfiguration, where this is something different, both terrifying and beautiful. And it reminds me of this in the second book, depending on how you count the debate over how you count the Chronicles of Narnia. But if you read them like me and you read the language in the wardrobe first, then you read Prince Caspian next. Um, it reminds me of when they get transported into Narnia and they're at that point looking for what's going on. And they can't quite figure out where they are at first. And they figure out this is Narnia. But of course, it is no longer than Narnia. They knew, and it's been hundreds and hundreds of years since they were last there. And they're looking for Aslan. And so to make a long story short, they eventually find Aslan. Lucy at least finds him. And this is what she says. And and Aslan in Narnia is the the Christ-like figure, the lion. And she says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her, and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you are bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. And she asks him, not because you are? 
I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that line by Lewis kind of describes, I think, a theological truth, which is God doesn't get bigger. God doesn't have any less majesty today than he had at the beginning of time or will have at the end of time, right? He is always full, but we change. And there is a sense in which as you grow, he becomes ever larger. The longer you know him, the larger he seems. And I look at John and I say, this is as good of an example as it gets. It's true for you if it's true for John. And it definitely seems to be true for John that even at 90 years old, having seen the church explode, this absolutely knocks him to the ground. And so we're going to look at some of the implications this morning of this first vision that John has of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see, firstly, of the author himself in these first few verses, that there's an implication here, that he uses John. And he uses him in a way that John identifies, saying, I am one of you. I have been persecuted. And I think you see that John has been uniquely prepared For this and to write this for these seven churches, which are going to be representative, of course, all the way down to the church today. And so the first implication is simply here that I think Jesus uses persecuted, prepared people. And he's going to prepare people. This is not just here, but this is found all over the scriptures through persecution. So look at the author here. John, again, identifies himself as the author. And he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. John doesn't identify himself as the apostle, the writer of the gospel. Maybe you've read my book. No, he doesn't say, look at my authority. He simply identifies as one It's a lot of humility. He has seen more than anyone else and is the last surviving apostle. And he simply says, I'm just one of you. He doesn't say, oh, when you read about the 12 thrones, I got one. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a fellow brother and I'm a fellow partaker. And partaker in what? He says, in the tribulation. Now it's distinguished later in the book of Revelation, when this is not the great tribulation, this is tribulations, or you could say sufferings, that they have all suffered. The first century church suffered. Being a Christian meant, and it's going to cost you something, maybe just work and the ability to provide for your family, but even perhaps physical beatings, even death. And he says, I've shared in those things with you. And he's just saying there's an identifying factor between me and the readers. An expectation they all have that we've been together and we have both been in persecution because of the name of Christ. So the sufferings, but he's saying we're also partakers in the kingdom and we're also partakers in perseverance, which is a huge theme throughout Revelation overcomers persevering to the end. He say, I'm a partaker in all these things which are in Jesus. When you go to the New Testament, this kind of idea of being a fellow partaker is used a few different ways, particularly in Philippians. It's a very similar construction. 
Philippians 1, and actually we could also go there. We're not going to but the end of Philippians as well when he talks about being a partner in that they gave him and helped him financially. But he says, for this is only right for me to think this way about you all, that is the church at Philippi, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. And although a little bit worded differently in Hebrews, the concept of suffering together and identifying together is even clearer. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. That is, when you got saved, it came with a cost. And you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle. You looked foolish to the world through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And so they unite around this. We have something in common, he's saying, together with John, and that there is a cost that comes with claiming Christ. Now that might be a little bit distinctive um, and that you might say to a degree greater than, than maybe where you sit today, but there's something that should be there in the New Testament. And you almost have to ask the question, if you're not suffering to some degree, why not? And it might just be that people don't know you are identified with Christ. They may not know some radical things that you believe about life and death and the gospel. And if they did, you might find yourself being a spectacle. John just expects that that's happened. And I think that's a good reminder for us that do we, do people know enough about us and our faith that they say, well, that doesn't sound right. It's foolishness. But what's foolishness to the world, of course, God is going to use. Secondly, not only is he saying, look, I'm just like you, I've partaken just like everyone else. He doesn't say he suffered more or suffered less. But he goes on to, in the the second uh, part of verse 9, identify where he is. And where he is, is the island called Patmos. And he's there because it says in verse 9, of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. Now everyone reading this, those first seven churches, this is an island right off of modern-day Turkey, near these churches, they would know exactly what Patmos is. And it is simply where prisoners go. And so it's a destination for criminals, political prisoners. The convicts were allowed relative freedom to roam the island. It seems that uh, he received visitors of, if you understand, the seven messengers that he gives. He writes this on a scroll and gives it to them to go to the churches. But they have to provide for their own Church history would say that churches actually brought him food and supplies, and that's how he survived. But many would have died of exposure. Of course, if you're free with other convicts, safety would always be an issue. And he's saying, I am there for one reason, and it's because of what I believe and what I professed and what I preached, which is the word of God and the witness of Jesus, and particularly him, he is a eyewitness. He's saying, look at what Christ, I was with him, and I give witness to him, and that has placed me on the prison island of Patmos. Someone pointed out last Sunday, I thought it was, it was interesting, because I kind of glanced over it at first, and um, even metaphors later, but of course, you think back to um, verse 5, when he uses a metaphor 
a picture to talk about the gospel. It is interesting that he says in the second half of verse 5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. You start to go, ah, that makes sense. If I'm a prisoner, what picture do I have of being freed, being released? And that kind of, again, that language there of prison. And even more so, the authority of, we're going to see this idea of keys, unlocking, being set free. But he understands it's not being released from earthly prison or having the key of the door unlocked so that he can go free into the Roman Empire. That's most important. What's most important is that Christ has done that for you as an individual, that you have become a witness of Christ as John here. He's been prepared for this moment. Kind of like a marathon runner, which I know nothing about. But I know you can't go do it in a day. I know you can't train for a week and go run a marathon, or at least not without having probably, you know, walking and serious issues. You could do better with training. But endurance is built over time in a way that John, I think, is prepared and is precisely ready for this moment. Uniquely chosen. And maybe he would prefer not to be out of the 11, the one who remains. But he is ready and prepared through his sufferings, through his witness of Christ to give this, to be the one of, as a kind of apostolic authority is is waning in the sense that the apostles are, are all gone, but he is here to write this final book to the churches. And that's a truth that God does will prepare people for service through suffering. In fact, James says we should consider it joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. John is still at 90 years old, being perfected, or that word probably better understood in English for us, matured. He's being complete, mature, lacking in nothing. God's still working through John, even at his, in his 80s and his 90. And it may be true for us as well, that God may be uniquely preparing you for something that you can only do in a later stage. I think that's encouraging that, you know, I think of it's the worst thing ever in my mind to have been an Olympian when you were 18 or 19. The reason I think that is because if you're an Olympic athlete at 17, 18, and 19, like a lot of them, especially the gymnasts are usually really young, and then, you know, you're, you're 20 and you're too old to be a gymnast pretty much, right? Well, that's the pin, that, your pinnacle of your life is at 20 or 19. How, how does that look? You're, you're on the national stage, you're, you're on TV, everyone stops and watches you for a couple weeks, do what you're best at in the world. Perhaps you win a gold medal. Well, you're 20. I mean, everything else from there, right, is, is down. It's not true for the Christian. There is things that the Lord is doing, and he's going to do that are uniquely in your life that are going to happen down the road. Likewise, I was fascinated. I don't know if you guys were as much with the back to 2016 election, and you started looking at the age of those candidates. In 16, Trump was 70. Bernie Sanders was 75. Hillary Clinton was 69. In 2020, Donald Trump was 74. 
Joe Biden's 78. In fact, our current president will be 80 in November. You got to stick around long enough, right? You might be president. You never know. I don't know if you would have thought that 10 years ago, 70 years old, well, I'll be president in one day, but it, that's what has happened. It is to say, this idea that, you know, in American culture of, of retirement or the Lord um, not using someone because of age is simply something not found in Scripture. You may change what you do, right? You may stop working in that same job that pays the bills. You may change, but you're still doing something, and the Lord's still capable of using, and we need more and more people they don't want, we don't need this mindset of retirement for ministry or usefulness in the kingdom. You see, John uniquely prepared, and I find it fascinating, he's 90 years old. Again, he's preparing John uniquely, and if you're still around, he's got you around for a reason. And you might be more seasoned, you might have a few miles more than everyone else, but I think it's really encouraging to see how Jesus uses John uniquely in a, over the, out of really the, the 12 and he uses it in a way that he prepares him for this moment, for service and for ministry. Secondly, an implication of John's first vision, you see that not only is Jesus going to use this man who you think would be done, but he's not. But he also warns and comforts his people by reminding them of who he is. And it's interesting how this is a very fine line between warning and comforting, between this should terrify me to, well, this is good because he is coming in his glory and might. And if he is good and I am his, then this is a good thing. But even John, we'll see, falls down like a dead man. But he will warn. He will comfort. Verse 11, or verse 10 uh, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. There's some debate over exactly what that is. I tend to think it's just not that he's transported to the future, but that he is simply caught up in this vision, similar to the Old Testament prophets on the Lord's day, simply meaning that it was on a first day of the week that they met on the Lord's day on a Sunday and as he's caught up, he starts to begin with this. A loud voice he hears like that of a trumpet. And it is the commission that he is given that there are a few imperatives or commands in the coming text. One is, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Well, write, it says, verse 11, in a scroll, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Those churches along, remember the map we talked about last week. Maybe I'll bring a map next week. That'll wait, that'll wait. Someone told me it's not in the back of their Bible. I was like, what? We'll, we'll bring it next week. But uh, along the postal route of these churches and where they are. But he's to write what he sees on a scroll and send it to the churches. And after he hears that voice say that, he, he, he turns, it says, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking with him. And having turned, verse 12, I saw seven golden lampstands, which we're going to see is, is clarified later. But it's a vision of turning and he's seeing, imagining these seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man 
clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And what does he see? This figure, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, the kind of bronze that comes smelting out of the fire, that it made a glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand the seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. This is what he turns to, and then his response. When I saw him, this is a person, I fell at his feet like a dead man. There's a sense in which I see this and understand this should be a kind of check. This is terrifying. Even John falls down like a dead man. This unique vision of Christ in all of his glory and in his might. Verse 13 causes the reflection on Daniel chapter 7, which we saw a lot in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, turn there, because we'll look at a larger section briefly. But in Daniel chapter 7, this is one of those ways in which we see Revelation, not quoting exactly, but using phrases in bringing to mind what we should go. I've, I've read that somewhere. And this idea of like a son of man comes from Daniel 7, verse 13. But we'll start in verse 9. And in verse 9, this picture of the rule of Yahweh the Ancient of Days, in his vision, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow. Sounds familiar. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him and the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. And then in verse 13, the phrase that we're Looking for, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. So similar to verse 5, he's coming clouds. He came up, or one, like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and he came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So as you go back to Revelation chapter 1, you see he expects you to have this picture. This is a continuation of Daniel. This is the same period of the end. 
And Daniel gets to see this, and he sees in the middle of the lampstand this language of Yahweh, of a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And the hair and the head, just like Daniel. And you go, this is the same language. These prophecies are related. Just quickly on the golden sash. Why is this golden sash? Why is he looking pictured this way? Because the golden sash would not be one of royalty, but would be of the priesthood. Look at Exodus 28. And where do we see sashes? You see Exodus 28, verse 39. That you shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen. And you shall make a turban of fine linen. And you shall make a sash the work of a weaver. And so a sash is sitting accompanying across the chest that would signify and say, that is a priest. How do they set themselves apart? Well, they set themselves apart by the way they look. They don't look like everybody else, right? They look distinctive. For the Aaron's sons, it goes on, you shall make tunics, you shall also make sashes for them and you shall make caps for them. This is interesting. For glory and for beauty. So it's for glory and it's for beauty. And it's also, verse 41, that you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and set them apart as holy, that they may minister to me as priests. And so there is this distinctiveness of the priesthood, the Levites in Israel. But this is a different kind of distinctive, right? But it is symbolizing that he is the high priest that Hebrews talks about. He's dressed in such a way that there is the might and the glory of the kingdom. He is king. He is judge, as we'll see. But he's also priestly. And he's coming in this glory and this might and beautiful, setting him apart from everyone else. In other words, he's, he's like a priest, but he's unlike any other priest that has ever come. He will, in that way, serve as a warning because he's coming not like in his first coming. He's coming in a way where he's coming to judge. He's coming where you will see his glory. You will not be deceived. He's not coming lowly riding on a donkey. Rather, he's going to come on the white horse with a sword as it's described here. Now, I want to look as well a little bit forward into our coming studies because he picks up John on this language throughout the first couple chapters of Revelation. And so you look just chapter two, no surprise, exactly what he says right down. I'm going to address these seven churches. But in chapter two, you're going to see he uses this as a way to each time remind the churches of who Jesus is. And as I said, I think it's a warning because, of course, some of these things, if not the majority of the at least five, where you see very negative, there, there's even re- Ephesus is, is they've done some good things, but then he has something against them. And so it's always a reminder of who is giving this letter, who is writing this. Chapter two, it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, this is that one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's almost as if to say, remember who writes this. Because he goes on in Shmirna and he says to the angel of the church in Shmirna, right? This is what the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life, as we're going to see in 17 
and 18. The Pergama, this is what the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says. To Thyatira, this, verse 18, is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis. This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 7. This is what he who is holy and who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Laodicea, verse, chapter 3, verse 14. This is what the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation says. That all these kind of titles and truths and realities of Christ are repeated over and over again so that you don't lose sight of who he is. Listen to him. Listen. He is coming. Be prepared. Listen. And he's going to start to repeat the message in chapter 2 and 3. And overcome. Persevere. You should look at the person of Christ and you should be motivated. You should be encouraged and have the right response to his coming glory and might. But it's not just the, the terrifying glory and might that you see here. His face shining like the sun in its power. But in verse 17, that after John falls down dead like a dead man, the son of man the first and the last, the Messiah Jesus, kindly takes his right hand and places it, I kind of imagine, on his you know, shoulder. I don't know if he has to kneel down because he's prostrate on the floor and says, do not fear. So there's comfort as well as warning. Do not fear. You don't need to fear. Why? Because of who he is. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Don't fear. Is there something to fear? Well, if he's coming and you are not his, and he's coming now to wage war, if you're not his through Christ, then you should fear. But John is a witness of Christ. He's a believer in Christ. And he's saying, because of that, you don't need to fear. I am your king, the first, the last, the living. He's the one who was dead, who is now alive forever. He has authority. And that's that idea of keys, the keys of death and of Hades. You think of Matthew 16, right? And the authority of, he says, I'm going to give Peter, he's talking there, the, these keys, right? The church, that is the gospel, as we preach through it in Matthew, that it is the gospel that gives people life as it used the metaphor here early in Revelation that it's going to turn a key, open the gate and release people from their sins if they believe and they turn and repent of their sin and believe in Christ. He has the authority to give life. He has the authority to take life. This is another uh, phrase which we're going to see again and it's coming from what we should be familiar in the Old Testament, because if you remember in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, in that address, this is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shut, and who shuts and no one opens, that is final safe, final authority. That picture comes from 
Isaiah 22, verse 22. It says, then I will set the key of the house of David. That is, that I will give the authority, that is the rightful fulfillment, the rightful son, the rightful heir of the Davidic covenant. I will set the key of the house of, of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. It is Jesus' way of saying, I have the ultimate authority. I have the keys of both. And there's kind of, how do we understand death and of Hades? I'll kind of take, I think, the most simple understanding of it, which is I have the keys of death, which is that it is the state of death. That is whether you're going to be dead or alive. And he has the keys over the place of death. So both the state of death and the place of death. Hades is not negative, at least in the way it's used here. It's simply used as the Greek translation of Sheol, the place of the dead. He has the keys to the place of the dead, and he's going to give life to whom he decides to give life to through belief in the gospel. And he'll return, as we'll see here, with that authority with that might and with that glory. It's a kind of jarring reminder. If you, again, you read this and you read this through and this sounds crazy. A little less crazy once you look at Isaiah, right? A little less crazy when you read Daniel and you go, okay, this isn't out of the blue. He assumes you have seen these visions before in Daniel. Even uh, Ezekiel talks about Ezekiel being caught up in the spirit or even Paul being caught up into the third heaven. This isn't completely a departure from what we have seen throughout the scriptures, but it is meant to be very jarring and impact the way these churches live and impact the way our church and the way you should live and the way you should lead your families. It's meant to jar out of of apathy. And so, you know, you have those moments where um, the great example for me is driving. I go drive day in and day out put the miles on the truck and I don't think much about it. And then that one time you almost get in an accident, man, it sobers you up really quickly and you realize, oh, I'm driving a two-ton vehicle, 60 miles an hour and here comes a semi and if I had been over there when he came, you know, you don't, you don't make it. It jars you to say, it's time to pay attention The vision of Jesus should do something similar for us. This is supposed to help us go. We've been living our Christian life. You've been going through this. One of the reasons I would say you need to read and study Revelation because most of your life, you're gonna start getting used to things. You're not gonna start to think about the return of Christ. Hopefully communion at the Lord's table is doing that week in and week out or or every month for us. But this is meant again, you study Revelation to be jarred into thinking this is going to be graphic and real. It represents the coming king in all of his glory and all of his might, and it should propel us towards action. The third implication of John's first vision here, not only does Jesus use persecuted, prepared people, he is going to warn and comfort his people by reminding him again over and over in this book who he is, who he is, who he is, who he is. But thirdly, that he's going to reveal the truth or truth in the mystery. Now, I'm not going to tell you Revelation is going to tell you everything you need to know about the future, or should I say it's not going to tell you everything about the future, but it's going to tell you everything you need to know about 
the future. It's going to make certain things extremely clear along the way. Clear where it needs to be clear. And you see that in verse 19 and verse 20. He's going to clarify when he needs to clarify. And yeah, especially when it comes to issues of timing. He doesn't give that same clarity, but we don't need. In fact, we're told in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. But there are certain things you do need to know. There are certain mysteries that you do need to start to go get clarity on. It's like in Thessalonians, when they're wondering, have they missed it? And Paul needs to write them and say, no, you have not missed the rapture. There are certain things we need to know to live a mature Christian life that overcomes the wickedness of this world that perseveres. We need to know these things. And that's why we need to study Revelation. And he's going to reveal truth in the midst of some things that are mysterious. You won't know all the answers, but you will know enough truth, the truth that Christ wants you to know. And so he reveals in verse 19 a little bit of that truth here by explaining the pictures. He says, therefore, write, again, another imperative, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands, he says, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's important clarity before we start into, what am I writing? I understand seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. There's probably four different options you could look at that. I think it makes the most sense and has the least amount of problems that this is probably more of a generic term. So the Greek word for angel simply means messengers. It doesn't need supernatural messengers. It just means messengers. It could be supernatural or it could not be. I think the context here probably leads me to go. It's probably visitors that are going to come. Maybe they're already there. John's going to write this. He's going to give it to those messengers from those churches, those individuals, and they're going to take it back to the churches. I think it's the best way to understand it. And then the seven lampstands clearly here are those seven churches listed out in Asia Minor. But he's going to write these things. He goes on. And then he's going to say, what you have seen, and this is where I think this is really helpful as you look at Revelation, vision so far, you write that. You also need to write about the things which are. What's chapters two and three? Write about things that are true about real churches in real time and real places. Is there a way in which those seven churches are representative? I believe so. Even the way, the, the idea of the number seven and completeness. But also those churches needed to hear these things. There are things going around at that time that are current. So write what you just saw. Write what will, um, which are going on in these churches, the churches of Asia Minor. But also, this gets back to the prophecy element, write about the things which will take place after these things. That is to say that there is a future element to the book of Revelation. There's things that are gonna happen after. And if you, uh, if you date the book later, which I think you, one of the best evidences is, is really the age of the apostle John, in the 90s, then you look towards this being after that point, these things have to come to pass, which we'll see over the coming weeks. But it's meant to reveal. I think you got to keep that in mind. Go back to verse one of chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the uncovering. It doesn't make sense to make something radically confusing when his purpose is to uncover 
right? He wants to reveal and uncover certain aspects, not every aspect you ever want, but the aspects that you need to know that lead to overcoming and persevering. I think it's really helpful to understand that, that it gives more clarity. It's meant to give clarity, not to just create mystery. And it's a good thing because it had enough clarity that at least those first seven churches took what they read and said, this has an impact. And the one who is and who is to come has given us instruction. They're called to be overcomers because of clarity, not because of confusion. And too often, I think we focus the mystery and not enough on what is perfectly clear. Is there a question you'll ask this morning? Perhaps, that I don't know the answer to. I promise over the next few weeks, there's going to be questions I don't know the answer to. But back to the text, I think we can get enough clarity that we understand what we are to do in light of that truth. And so it is true and right as we talk a lot of times, we talk about the book of Revelation and the answer is Jesus wins. Well, that's true. I just think we can get a little more specific. But it's true, of course. Remember the mountain imagery that we used in the Olivet Discourse, especially with the two comings of Christ. And so you have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel in particular, and they're looking out and what they see is a coming Messiah. So very much, like you looking and seeing kind of the tops of mountains, you see, okay, I see that, right? I, I see there's a mountain over there. If you're looking at the range of Colorado, but then you actually climb up that mountain and you start to go, oh, there's a lot more in between this and there's other peaks and there's other valleys. And it's kind of that way, I think a good picture of how to understand prophecy. We don't always see everything. We see Jesus wins, but there's other things that happen in between and you get up there and you start to see, okay, and each generation I think can see more clearly as, as history happens. And of course, in some of this, no church will see clearly till it actually comes to pass. There's not all the details of all the valleys, but we do know it's a good example of, okay, we thought it was one coming, but then clearly he comes and he doesn't come with the sword, with the blazing face, with the flame of fire for eyes. No, that comes again, but it, it does happen just at a later date. So Jesus here clearly wants to use John, as we're going to see over and over again, to communicate his truth to his church. He is uniquely prepared for that. He's just one of them. He's being persecuted as he sits in prison, as it were, on the island. Maybe not in chains, but not able to leave and go about gospel ministry. Jesus wants these letters to be both warnings and comfort, depending on where you find yourself. And even in that own way, right? Even for the believer who says, I I know I don't have anything to fear. Sometimes it's good, like I said, a little bit like that near-miss car accident that wakes you up and says, you know, I'm not living my life in the way that honors the Lord. And this reality that he's returning, I will see him face to face, and this is what I see, should jar us into change. And that Jesus brings ultimate clarity to what these visions are to mean. And so as you look at this and as you see the, this glorious vision of the coming Christ— It should cause you to have a bigger vision of who God is and who Christ is. 
And I promise you, Lord willing, that's grown a bit. I mean, you might think of Jesus as a baby born into a manger. You might think of Jesus as persecuted, hung on a tree, a suffering servant. And you might go, well, he's those things he is, fully God, fully man, but he's, he's also this, this conquering king coming in all glory and in all might. And that should enlarge your vision of Christ. But I promise you, if you're growing in Christ in the years to come, you'll be just like Lucy in that you'll have this moment of thinking he's gotten bigger and you'll think it has some equation of God growing. Well, God doesn't grow, but the longer we know him, the larger he will continue to seem to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we see this glorious vision of Christ, understanding that we would do no better than the Apostle John here than to fall dead. And we are, apart from hope, apart from the salvation we have in Christ, that we can be reconciled to you. We'd have no hope even of being pulled up and encouraged that we don't have anything to fear if we are in Christ. So let us take that warning and that jarring reality Let it sober us to live um, sober lives, as Peter says, but also to be comforted that there is nothing because of Christ that can separate us from your love because he is the first and the last, the living one who was dead, but who is now alive forever with absolute authority, the keys of both death and Hades. We just ask this, pray this in your son's name. Amen.